The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And as you're turning there, I want to take just a moment. Uh, I mentioned Father's Day, but I honestly, I can't think of any greater job. I hate to call it a job. Uh, greater reward with great investment in my life than being a father and being now a grandfather. This last week, I was, uh, had the opportunity to observe some young fathers, and it reminded me of the sacrifices that fathers make. And I don't, he's not in here, so I can embarrass him, uh, my son-in-law. Of course, I'd embarrass him if he was here anyway. But my son-in-law yesterday uh, had kept the twins all by himself. Now, that in itself is a feat. But he had done it so my daughter could go and get a uh, massage that he had bought for her six months ago. And I thought, you know, that's what a dad does, right? Uh, then a young man uh, this week, Zach, I'll go ahead and call his name. Boy, he looked sharp yesterday. And I told Zach, I said, man, you need to train your dad how to dress. Because, uh, you know, and, and then the statement was made, well, he never gets clothes for himself because it's always for his kids. And I thought, that's what a dad does. And I think of all the lessons that I learned from my father, and actually today is kind of bittersweet. Many of you are in the same situation I am. It was three years ago today that my father passed. But I'm so grateful for the heritage that I learned from my dad, who he himself was a Christ follower, and I saw the example of what it means to be a loving husband and to be a good father. And I, I long determined if I can succeed at those two things in life, if I can be a faithful husband to the day I go home to meet Jesus, and if I can be a loving, providing, caring father, man, I've, I've, I've hit a grand slam. Can I say amen to that? So if I can have all the dads, granddads stand for just a moment, can we recognize you and just tell you um, as one of myself, there is no greater honor. Amen. Uh, one of the things I learned from my dad as I was growing up uh, happened when I was about 12 or 13, I think. Uh, many of you may not know, but I was, I was a pugilist growing up. I, I was a boxer. I fought golden gloves. And Lynn, you'll remember this because you took me to work out many nights. Uh, and my first fight that I had entered into, um, man, <laughs> I beat the tar out of him. You know? It was just a good fight. I won, and uh, I thought I was Cassius Clay at that time. I thought I was Muhammad Ali. I thought I was the next guy. And so going into my second fight, though, I had this... Big head about myself because I had won, and I was fighting this guy from Carver Homes. If you remember, familiar with uh, Atlanta, Carver Homes was a rough neighborhood. And man, this kid comes out, and it was about 20 seconds into the fight. The next thing I remember is they got smelling sauce in my nose, <laughs> and my brother's standing there over me, and I'm like, do I have to start again? You know, I was, he knocked me cold. And my dad gave me great advice. He said, it's good to have confidence, but not be overconfident. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is speaking to a church. You might call it the first church of Corinth, or the first Baptist church of Corinth. And they had, as we've seen in the last couple of chapters in particular, they had become overconfident. They had learned some things that were good spiritual, biblical truth that Paul commends them for. But in their learning, uh, they didn't follow the advice that Tim wrote, when he, uh, Paul wrote when he said, you know, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
And they had become pretty overconfident in their faith. You know, we might put it in this vernacular. They were saved. They had gotten their ticket to heaven. Uh, They had been through the Bible studies. They had been through experiencing God. And they had been through uh, all the different studies. And they had gotten to a place in their Christian life that they kind of figured they had it all together. That they knew everything that they needed to know. They had gotten their ticket for eternal life. They had even gotten to the place where they thought they knew better than the Apostle Paul. And some of that comes out in Paul's writings to them. And so they kind of had the idea, we have all this knowledge, everything's clicking along. So we're going to live our lives the way we want because we understand that we have freedom in Christ, which is a great doctrinal truth. But they were becoming overconfident in their knowledge of Christ, their position in Christ. And Paul outlines for them in chapter 10 where he's concluding this thought that begins in chapter 8 where he starts talking about meat sacrifice to idols. And we say, well, what does that have to do with us? Well, it has a lot of application to do with us as well. We don't eat meat that may have been sacrificed to idols. But what Paul is dealing with are those areas in the Christian life that are not explicitly forbidden in Scripture. And we have to make a determination in our own lives between us and the Holy Spirit. Is this right? Is this okay? Is this permissible for me? And the overarching theme is, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about the body. And so the answer to the question, is this okay for me to do? It's probably yes, under a freedom in Christ. But the question then is, is this good for the whole body? We said that Christ didn't die just for you or for me. And we like to say if we'd been the only person, he would have died for us. Yes, that's true, but Jesus died for his bride. Not just for an individual, right? And so Paul's stressing this in these chapters of edification of the whole body. And there was a danger, there were three dangers that he's going to outline in this chapter. And the first danger that he begins to outline in verses 1 to 13 is there is a danger of presumption in the life of the believer. Now to presume upon somebody is to have really kind of an expectation that because I'm in favor with you, because I'm in this relationship, this position with you, then I can take advantage of that position. And so Paul is saying, listen, don't presume upon God. We're reminded of what he writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He asks this question. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance? In other words, are you taking advantage of God's kindness, his patience? Understand that God's kindness and patience in our life is meant to lead to repentance, to turn from and to get in line with what God's plan and what His will and what His desires are in our lives. I'm reminded of Psalm 19, verse 13, where David cries out and he prays and he asks God, he says, God, keep your servant also from presumptuous sins. In other words, presuming upon you. Yes, you're a gracious God. You're a merciful God. You're a loving God. But God, don't let me fall into presumptuous sin. Just before Saul was dethroned, his kingship taken away from him, Samuel says to him in 1 Samuel, verse 13 of chapter 15, he says, rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft. 
Now notice the, the context that he puts here with presumption. He says, rebellion is a sin of witchcraft, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. So there's a stern warning in Scripture not to presume upon God. And yes, there are those things that God grants to us as our, the benefit of us being in relationship with Him. We know that we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ. We've been seated in heavenly places with Christ. But there's a fine line between the benefits and the graces of God in our life and us taking advantage or presuming on God. You following with me? You see, there's a balance in this. And so Paul begins to write in verse 1 of chapter 10. He says, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And what Paul is beginning to do is draw back from the children of Israel and their experience with God as being in special favor with Him as God's chosen people. And he's reminding them by saying, listen, even though they were God's chosen people, do you remember the cloud that led them signifying God's presence with them? And aren't you glad that God is present with you and me? Can you say amen to that? And he's, he's committed to be present with us continually, always. And he's saying, listen, the children of Israel, they had God's presence. And do you remember when they passed through the Red Sea, Paul says, signifying that God was protecting them and he allowed them to pass through the Red Sea and they were baptized into Moses. They had a partnership there with Moses. And he's saying, listen, all these things were God's favor and they in step with God. However, verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. It's noted that there were only two that entered into the promised land. Do you remember that? All the generation that came out of captivity in Egypt because God was displeased, He allowed them to die in the desert, and it was who were the two that went in? My favorite two, Joshua and Caleb. And he's saying, listen, they presumed upon God and His kindness and His goodness. And then he starts in verse 6 by saying this. He said, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. I love it that Paul says this. He says, listen, these things were written and recorded in Scripture for you and for me as examples that we might see what has taken place in the past. You see, there are some that say we don't need the Old Testament any longer. Oh, that's not true. These things were written for us in the past that we might learn from these things. And then he goes on to say in verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And we know in context, as we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, that was a huge issue in that early church. 
sexual immorality. He says, do not indulge in this as some of them did. He says, as, as they did, and 23,000 fell on a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, he says, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things, he reminds us again, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now Paul is mentioning three specific episodes in the life of the children of Israel. The first one there is he mentioned sexual immorality. We go back to Numbers chapter 25 is where we find the example where the children of Israel had forsaken God and given themselves over to the worship of Baal. And a part of the worship of Baal involved gross sexual immorality. And as a result of that, God brought judgment on His people. And if we might paraphrase it in these terms, as Paul is going to get to later, it's saying, look, man, you've been united with Christ. Why in the world would you want to go and be united with a demonic God and participate in the worship of that demonic God in sexual immorality? So he's warning them. Listen, this is what happened to the children of Israel. When he says in the next verse, don't test Christ, he speaks in Numbers chapter 21 where the children of Israel, not only did they begin to grumble against Moses, but they began to grumble against God. And they were saying, God, why did you take us out of Egypt? We remember how good it was in Egypt, and you brought us out into this God-forsaken desert, and they grumbled against God, and they were grumbling against God's will and His plan in their life. And God executed a judgment there against His people. The last one, He's telling them, listen, don't you, you complained against Moses and Aaron. And don't you understand and realize... God's telling the children of Israel, Numbers chapter 16, listen, I have appointed Moses and Aaron, and I have given them my will and my direction for you, and now you're grumbling against them, and as a result, God allowed a plague to come into the children of Israel. Some 14,000 died in the midst of the plague until Aaron finally stood between those who were dead and those who were living, and as a representation of Christ, the high priest, those were saved. And Paul is writing this and saying, listen, don't presume upon God. And there is a danger in presumption against God. Now, here's what I love. Verse 12, though. Paul begins to bring some practical application to this. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And folks, that's for every one of us. No matter how far along we have walked with Jesus, the fact remains we still have a tempter. We still have an evil one. We have Beelzebub. We have the devil and his legions who are working every day to place in our life temptations and things that might cause us to become an idolatrous people to worship other things rather than God and know that you haven't arrived You see, the greatest danger for a Christian is to think that we have arrived. Now, there are some days where I have glorious moments with Jesus in quiet time. Anybody there with me? 
And there are many other days where it ain't so glorious, right? But I have to be careful because in those seasons where that time of fellowship with the Lord is so sweet, I finally, I I get the idea, man, I finally found the key. You understand what I'm saying? And the moment I leave that time, I recognize and realize the enemy is right there waiting to see if he might bring me down. You see, sometimes God allows that so that we know we hadn't gotten too big for our britches, as Big Mama used to say. And he says, listen, if you ever think you've arrived, if you think you've come to the place where you have the right liturgy, the right way to do church, to worship. If you think you ever come to the place that you've got the right translation of the Bible and, and you're more haughty than others than that. If you ever think because you've completed these studies, if you've done all this stuff, be careful lest you fall yourself. And then he says in verse 13, and here's the good thing about it. He says that there's no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. This word uh, temptation can be translated one or two ways. It can be translated in the sense of a temptation to sin, or it can be translated in in the sense of a temptation or a test in life. And I think in context of what Paul's talking to, he's most specifically talking about temptation to sin. And he's saying, listen, there is no temptation that has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And that word overtaken means to take by force. And so there is no temptation that you and I will ever face that is uncommon to man. We know that Jesus, by the Father's will, was led into the desert so that he might be what? Tempted, yet he overcame. Jesus was tempted in all manners, the Bible says, just as you and I were. So the first thing we need to note, temptation is not sin. Amen? Somebody said this last week to me, he said, you know what? He said, you can't keep the bird from flying over your head, but you can certainly keep them from building a nest in your hair. I said, well, I don't have to worry about that. (laughs) So we need to understand that temptation is common to man, but he says, with that temptation, God is faithful. I can't help but think of the old hymn, Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, God, my Father. And then what does it say? There is no shadow or turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord. Aren't you glad you have a faithful father? You may not have had a faithful father, biological father, but you have a faithful father. He says, for God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability now, Paul here, we've got to understand this. Paul is not talking about our physical, our human ability. You see, if we're here this morning thinking that, 
that we can overcome temptation on our human ability, we've, we completely missed it. We're in a work salvation. You follow me? And yes, you and I can discipline ourselves in some ways to a certain measure humanly. But thank God that He has given us the Holy Spirit. That when we are born again, the Holy Spirit resides in us. And He has given us by His power the ability to overcome the tempter and the flesh so we don't succumb to sin. Amen? I don't get the idea that we'll ever reach sinless perfection. That won't happen until Jesus comes back. But He has given us the power. And God is faithful. We're reminded that with that temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I always remind myself, J-Mo, you are one sin away from disqualification. We all are, right? God's gracious and He's merciful and He's forgiven. But there are consequences to that. And so for you and I in our life, God forbid that we rely on our own abilities to overcome, but we call on the Father and say, God, you are faithful. Now show me the way of escape from this temptation in my life. Oftentimes we always think of the majors, but listen, it's the minors. God is not impartial when it comes to sin. He doesn't say, okay, that's a little white lie. But in every area of our life, now let's look at the next danger. There was danger of compromise beginning in verse 14 that they were in danger of doing. You'll notice in this passage that there's a pattern that Paul, Paul first calls calls them to think and then he asks a couple of questions and then he comes to a conclusion and repeats that twice. Look what he says, therefore, meaning what I've just said, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's the second time Paul has used that word in this book and it's the last time. Where he says flee, first time, he used it in chapter 6, where he says flee from sexual immorality. What does the word flee mean? It means cut and run, right? Get out of there, flee. Don't try to stand on your own, but flee that. And he says, listen, flee from idolatry. And we say, well, wait a minute, we don't worship carving images. You know, sometimes I think we might be tempted to worship this brick and mortar image rather than the one who has called us together as an assembly of believers. Am I I okay? You see, idolatry is anything that we allow to take place of our worship to a holy and loving God who has created us in His image and has given us purpose for Him and Him only. Sometimes I'm afraid that we worship the SCC more than we do our Heavenly Father. Especially if you're an Alabama fan, that's a joke. You you get where I'm going though? You see, sometimes I'm guilty of, of worshiping, I love gardening. Sometimes I'm more guilty of worshiping the plant rather than the creator of the plant, right? So anything in our lives can become idolatry, can become an item, an object we worship. And so Paul's writing here, flee from idolatry. 
I, I speak to a sensible people. I love this. Paul, Paul, Paul he, he knows he's about to come in, so he's got to build them up a little bit. He says, I speak to a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. In other words, examine what I say. And then he begins to talk about communion that we participated in last week. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the, blood of, in the body, body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we are many as one body, for we all partake of one bread. And then he says in verse 18, Consider again the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offered to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. And you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And let's break down what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, listen, flee from idolatry. Flee from anything that you place over in worship of God more. And he says, listen, in communion, it's not just something we do as a ritual. It's not something that we just put on the calendar and do habitually when we decide to do it, but, but when we partake of communion as a body, that we are literally participating as one body together in the blood of Christ. Not the literal blood of Christ, but the representation of that. And as a body, and in that day, they used one loaf of bread. And maybe it would be good for us to go to that because in that one loaf of bread, it symbolized that it's a complete body of bread. And as participants, we all participate in the taking of that together. And so what Paul is building a case for here is that, folks, it's not about you and me. It's about him. And he says, listen, the, the, the meat sacrificed to idols, there, there really are no other idols. There are no other gods but God. He said, well, what you don't get is that those that are sacrificing the meat to idols as a form of idolatry are really sacrificing that to demons. And I don't want you to participate in that. How can you participate in the communion with Christ and the communion with demons? Now, let's draw the application here. You see, for any idol that we place in our lives, any idol that we elevate above God is inspired by the evil one and demonic forces that are there. And he's saying, listen, it's demonic. It's the devil's tactic to take your worship. He's been trying to steal God's worship ever since he was thrown out of heaven. And it's demonic. Now, there's a balance in this. If we're not careful, we think that a demon is behind every bush. And granted, there are demons that are active. But at the same time, we can't pass it off and say, listen, that was just a biblical times. There are no such thing as demons. That is a lie from demon himself. They are real. And what happens oftentimes when these things that we place or allow in our lives to become idols that we worship, I don't care what it is, 
if it takes place of God, it's demonically influenced. You see, Satan knows that he doesn't have you or I if you've been born again. Right? His work now is to destroy our witness. His work now is to destroy our families. His work now is to take us away from the mission that Christ has given to us to go and make disciples of all nations. And it may look real good and it may be okay. And He will bring that in there so that we worship it and therefore take our worship away from God and worship that man-made thing. rather. And it is a pure trap of the enemy. And you see, some, by giving way to that, allow demonic strongholds to take place in our lives. Now I want to make it very clear. The Bible does not teach, and as a matter of fact, it teaches that a born-again believer cannot be possessed by a demon. But I can tell you this. We can allow demonic influence and strongholds in our lives if we give way to that and allow idol worship to come into our lives. Does that make does that clear? And so Paul, out of his love, is saying, listen, there's a danger. Cut and run. Flee. And lastly, he begins to tell them that there is a danger of legalism. Beginning in verse 24, 23. He quotes them and he, he says, listen, you said all things are lawful, but let me remind you, not all things are helpful. In other words, in my freedom in Christ, all things are lawful if they're not explicitly forbidden in Scripture. But not all things are helpful. And I would say that he's not only applying that to our lives individual, but he's thinking more of the whole body. He says all things are lawful, but not all things build up. In other words, not all things build up and edify the body of Christ. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, we all have to admit that sometimes the first person in our thoughts is ourselves, right? How does that affect me? What is that going to do to my schedule? What is that going to do to my activities? But he's saying, listen, consider others better than yourselves. And it's following Christ's example that the one who wants to be a servant must learn to first, uh, the one who wants to leave must first learn to be what? A servant of all. And he's saying, listen, it's, it's not for your sake, J-Mo, but it, it's for the body's sake. Verse 25. Eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. Oftentimes the meat that was sacrificed to idols, while some would be consumed there in the temple, other would go out to be sold in the meat market. And he's saying, listen, eat whatever's sold in the meat market. And he says, without raising any questions on the grounds of conscience. In other words, don't ask if it was sacrificed to an idol, is what he's saying. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In other words, hey, if you, if you go to an unbeliever's house, if I go to John's house, no, just kidding, John. 
and he prepared meat there, he's saying, listen, don't ask, hey, was that meat sacrificed to idols? Just don't ask the question. Just eat the meat. Without raising questions of conscience. Now follow what he's saying here. He said, but if someone says to you, this meat has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Because then you have knowledge of it. And not only might it bother your conscience, but it's not about you, remember? It's not about me. It's about the other person. You're in an unbeliever's house. And he says, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. What's he telling us there? It's for the sake of the other, right? You see, there, there are many things in your life and in my life that we might know that we have the freedom in Christ to do. But for the sake of the conscience of the unbeliever, we do what? And we saw in Romans 14, keep it to yourself if you do. See, these are the practical guidelines that Paul... Now, we worked that out. You'll have to work that out. In your life and in those areas. I'm not going to tell you how to work that out. That's not my place. Whose place is that to do? The Holy Spirit of God. And you see what the Holy Spirit of God has convicted you of in conscience. I am in no way going to violate that. That's between you and Him, right? You see, we don't give way to anyone else where the Holy Spirit is the only one who deserves the right and authority in our lives. Does that make sense? He's going to say that. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? That's what he's saying there. You see, your liberty, Paul's liberty, my liberty, should not be determined by anybody else's conscience. But we have a God who's able to direct and convicts us in our conscience in those manners that are not explicitly spoken of in Scripture. Now, underline that. He says, if I participate with thankfulness, then why am I denounced? Because that which I give thanks. And then he concludes it in verse 31 to 33 by saying this. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. All things. What is all things? All things. I draw from that a question that's an application that's good for you and for me. Christ, is, is this to your glory? And that helps me answer those questions of conscience. Christ, does this bring you glory, Jesus? Does this magnify you? Does this exalt you to your rightful place? And if the answer is no, then guess what? The answer is solved. Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks. Now, we've got to understand this word offense because he's not talking about, I, I mean, I, sometimes you can offend somebody with your southern accent, right? <laughs> I mean, he's not talking about that kind of petty stuff. He, he means to cause one to stumble. He says, so I'm conscious that in my life, 
I don't want to do anything that causes one to stumble. I might get offended if you don't say hey to me, but that's not what he's talking about. But if you try to live your life that way, my goodness, you're, a, you're just all over the map, right? I need to come see you if we live our lives that way. Some deep counseling. It can drive a person crazy. He's not talking about those minor kind of offenses. This is word of note. Can I, can I, can I, can I liberate you a little bit? I might as well. I've already gotten in trouble. So. Listen, don't, don't live your life trying to live it to please other people's expectations of you. That is so self-defeating, and that's not the way God has intended us to live. I'm talking in those non-essential offenses. Live your life for Him. Live your life to honor Him and bring Him glory because each of us stand or we fall before our own Maker. That'll liberate you. And Paul's saying, listen, do all to the glory of God just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Now notice Paul's not talking about all the little, he's not talking about the way he wears his hair and all that stuff. He, he's talking about living his life before men, he says, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Bottom line there, Paul's position was, listen, my greatest passion in life is to see people come to know Jesus and become disciples of him. So I'm going to live my life with that single focus of mission. God, your purpose in my life today, I may have other responsibilities, you may have other responsibilities, but my mission in life that you've given me, that he's given you when you came to know Christ. He has given us all a single mission to lead some to Christ, to make disciples of them, and then to send them for Christ. Folks, that's why we're here. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.